thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for democracy. Find out about your rights as a voter. It starts with you. LeadSA.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. Yes, I know you're very excited. It's that time of the Friday morning again. We are stripping science down to its bare essentials. Whatever it is that you are curious about, we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567-011-883. 0702. Chris, hello, good morning. Hello. Lovely to hear from you. Now, Chris, we do get a lot of SMSs about uh, cataract. Uh, I see there's laser cataract surgery, uh, which will be a site for sore eyes. Tell us more. Well, there's a story this week. It's in the journal Science Translational Medicine, Reedy. It's by researchers at Stanford University in America, Daniel Palanka and his colleagues. And what they have done is to come up with a computer system uh, which is able to model and then f- perform some of the more delicate and sensitive aspects of cataract surgery on an eye using a laser. Now, cataract surgery is very common. About one person in three in many countries will end up needing it at some time, and it's usually very safe. Mm. But there are some aspects to the surgery which are a bit chancier, and they are just down to the skill of the surgeon to make an estimate of what's required. Now, what I'm getting at is a process called capsularexis. Now, when you do a cataract procedure, what you've got to do is to go inside the front part of the eye and the lens sits behind the cornea on the front of the eye and it's the lens that needs to be replaced because it's become fogged with age. So what the surgeon will do is to go in through the side at the front of the eye and they puncture a bag called the capsular membrane Mm -hmm. and this is like a bag which holds that lens and they make a circular aperture in the front of that bag which enables them to go in get the old lens out, usually you break it up using ultrasound or something similar, and then you slot in in its place a little prosthesis, a miniature pretend lens that takes over the function of the one that you've just removed. Now the problem is that in order to make sure that the hole you make in the bag, this process called capsularexis, is a nice even circle, it's very hard to do that with an with a microscope inside someone's eye. Mm. And the way in which the ophthalmologist does it is by using a needle to puncture lots of tiny holes in a circle in the bag and then take the core of that circle away. Now, it's got to be a circle because if you have edges where two bits come together and you have a, a weakness, the bag could then tear and rupture subsequently. So you need a circle because there are no weak points in a circle. It's a bit like why aeroplanes have circular windows, because it keeps the airframe nice and strong. How do you get that nice, perfect round circle, though, without having to do it this painstaking and guest-driven way? Well, what their process does in, in America is that they take 
patients, they get a computer system to scan the front of the eye and to build up a profile of the lens and this lens capsule and the, the bag that holds it. They then use a very short firing laser. It's got a femtosecond laser because it just fires very brief pulses and they're able to see through the cornea onto this bag holding the lens and cut this very precise, perfect, nice round circle which in tests ended up being perhaps twice as strong as when it's been done by a surgeon manually. And they then also use the laser to blow up the lens and degrade it and it's then taken out and the new implant is put in. And they've done a trial so far on 50 patients. Um, in 30 of those patients, it was what's called a crossover trial. So they did one eye using the new technique and the other eye using the existing mm. technique. There were no negative outcomes. The people who had the laser therapy had slightly less swelling of the eye and tissues afterwards compared with the people who had it done the manual way. The laser made cuts 50 times more precise to that bag holding the old lens, which means that the eye should remain healthier and there should be a better outcome in the long term for those people. And the fact that it was completely safe, in, uh, or at least as safe as people having the surgical procedure, gives them confidence that they now need to go and do a much bigger trial. So it looks like one of the chanciest, trickiest and most difficult parts of cataract surgery could get a lot safer and a lot more predictable thanks to mm. a bit of help from a laser. So so the, the laser treated individuals, had they, did they have better visual uh, acuity, af acuity afterwards? Slightly better. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't statistically significant though. Okay. And this could be just because the lens implant, the fake lens that you put in to replace the one you've taken out, could be slightly better sighted just slightly because of the fact that you've got a much better preparation of that bag to hold it in than if the surgeon does it manually. The, there was a very slight improvement in the acuity, but it wasn't statistically significant. But then it was quite a small group of patients. So if they did it on a bigger group, they might find overall the acuity is better. Mm -hmm. Let, let's talk about uh, pregnancy here. We know how babies developed in the uter in, develop in the uterus, but how does the uterus then remain in a relaxed state until the baby is ready to be born? Well, another big breakthrough this week. Um, this is by Nora Renthal, who's a researcher at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, and it's in the journal PNAS this week. And they have discovered some of the molecular co clockwork that keeps the uterus turned off. And obviously, you don't want the uterus to become active before it's time for the baby to come out. And although we knew that progesterone, one of the female hormones, was very important in keeping the uterus in an off state until the time is right, no one really understood how it then either achieved that effect or was allowed to turn off so the uterus could start to have contractions and push a baby out. And what this group have discovered is that there's a gene called ZEB1, which is in the uterus, and this gene turns off a bunch of other genes, including one called Connexin 43, and this is a gene that allows muscle cells to connect themselves together so waves of contractions can go through an organ. Another gene called the um, oxytocin receptor, and oxytocin is one of the chemicals that makes the uterus contract when it's time for a baby to come out. And also another one called COX-2, cyclooxygenase 2, and this is a gene that enables inflammation to occur in the wall of the uterus and you actually need that to start the process of birth. Those genes are all turned off by this ZEB1 gene. They also found a, a little family of functional nucleic acids called microRNAs and these also get turned off by this ZEB1 gene. But here's the clever twist. These microRNAs, microRNA200, they actually also turn off the ZEB1 gene. So 
what they think is going on is that progesterone comes in, the progesterone turns on this ZEB1 gene, which in turn turns off lots of other genes which are involved in making the uterus contract, and at the same time it turns off its own off switch. Uh, and so if you turn off the, on the off switch, mm -hmm. then it can become more active later. So what they think is going on is that you, can ha you have these microRNAs which when you turn off the off switch, they then come on and further turn off the off switch, so then the process of, of, of birthing kicks in in a big way and, and becomes a positive feedback loop. So understanding actually how this works is important because there are some people who don't go into labour at the right time. There are other people um, who have a labour starting at the wrong time, too early, and you want to delay it. So understanding how this process works is important because we can make drugs and things to get in and interrupt the process of labour or speed up the process of labour accordingly. And speaking of labour and pregnancy, scientists have solved a long-standing mystery relating to the structure of the placenta tell us more yeah there's um been this long question it's about a hundred years or more people have, have been wondering why is it that despite the fact that a placenta has the same job to do in pretty much every animal that has one so why is the structure of the placenta in all these different animals so different why is a human or an ape or a baboon placenta um very it's very f sort of like fingers, it's got villi, which project into the wall of the lining of the uterus, but it's not very complex. Whereas, say, a leopard has a placenta which is incredibly complicated and it has lots of folds of tissue which go into the lining of the uterus. Why should these two animals have these totally different setups. And so what a group of researchers at Durham University, and this is Robert Barton and Isabella Capellini, and they've got a pi paper in the American Naturalist this week. Um, what they've done is to look at the placenta structure of 109 different mammals, and they looked at the size of the placenta, the structure of the placenta, the gestation of the animal, in other words, how long it's pregnant for, the size of the animal, and so on. And they think they've solved the mystery because it turns out that animals that have the shortest gestation, in other words, the baby is born the quickest, they tend to have the most complicated structure of placenta, a placenta which is very highly folded and very closely interdigitated with the maternal blood flow. And what is happening is that with a complex placenta, there's a much bigger surface area to allow nutrients to go from the mother into the baby so the baby can grow very fast. But not all animals want their babies to grow that fast because that could rob the mother of too many resources and nutrients. So animals like humans that have babies that have a lot of growing to do, big brain and so on, they tend to have a more simple uh, placenta because then the mother can limit the rate at which the baby grows. So you have a longer gestation, but it doesn't put such a demand on the mother to grow that baby because if a human tried to grow the size of baby we have with the demand of that baby being placed on the mother that it does in less time than nine months, it would probably be from an evolutionary point of view, very, very disadvantageous to a woman. So the choice has been made to have the gestation we do, and that's achieved by affecting the structure of the placenta to limit the growth rate of the baby. We're taking your calls on 021-446-0567, right after this. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Les in Fordsburg, good morning. Yes, good morning, Reedy. Mm. Um, I, I love the show. I wouldn't miss it for the world. I love all this information that comes. We're delighted to um, hear. My, my question to the naked scientist, how do you, <coughs> pardon me, how do you navigate in space? In other words, oh, we, have points, we have points of reference. We have north, south, east, and west. 
and these are governed by the magnetic poles and so on and so forth. Okay. Now you're going to send a spaceship, the Mariner, to Mars, 42 million miles away. You're in a trillion, trillion miles of nothing. How do you get it there? How do you navigate this thing, the Earth rotating, the moon going around, the sun, the planets? How do you get it there? How do you navigate Okay, we got the question. Naked scientist? Cheers, Liz. Um, well, the bottom line is that you're right. On Earth, we have a magnetic field, and you can plug your compass in, or we have GPS these days, and you can have a look using the, the power of satellite technology to work out where you are. In space, well, no one's been there that much, so there isn't all that wonderful infrastructure, and there's certainly no magnetic field to plug into to have a compass. But you can do what the ancient seamen used to do, which was to navigate by the stars, because the uh, the universe is so bullet full of stars, there are probably 10 followed by 22 zeros of them out there, that, and many of them are so far away that over the very short distances that we'll be moving in our own solar system, those stars barely move to our view. So if you look at where those stars are, you can work out various directions and things, and so people can work out which direction they are. And if I was navigating in space, I would use the pinpoints of stars um, distant from me to know if I was going in the right direction. Because relative to each other, those stars won't change very much over the sorts of timescales we're talking about. And relative to the objects close to me, um, they, there will be a difference. And so as a result, you can use that as your way marker. So the answer is that a lot of it is pre-programming. When you send a spacecraft off, you know where you want it to go and you do all the careful physics calculations to work out what direction it's going to go in and when. So you pre-program a lot of the trajectory um, and you also know where the ob objects are that it's going to be interacting with. So you can take those into account. But if you were navigating over long distances in space, I would certainly use the configurations of stars in the night sky to tell me where I was and where I was going. We have an addition to that question, uh, Chris. Uh, Dawn called in asking how people swallow in space well this was a big worry for nasa um before they started spending and and the russians before they started sending physically living things into space because people were worried they thought that you needed gravity to help stuff go downwards um in fact, that turns out not to be a concern, and there are lots of clips on YouTube, if you take a look, of people, usually drunk people at parties, drinking upside down. In other words, you've got someone holding someone's legs up in the air, mm -hmm. and a drink in someone's hand, and they put the drink into their mouth, and they're still able to drink uphill. And this is because swallowing is an active process, it doesn't rely on gravity, it's a muscular pr process. So when you put a bolus of food or drink into your mouth, then the tongue compresses that to the back of the throat. It squeezes it down into your throat, and the esophagus, or your gullet, is a muscular tube which runs from the back of your throat into the top of your stomach, and that muscle contracts in a wave, pushing whatever is inside the esophagus ahead of it. And so as a result, you can swallow despite being upside down. So it's not such a problem. Um, the, only, the only thing people do say is that if you have particularly fizzy food in space, you would have lots of bubbles which would swell up in your stomach, and th this would occur in any point inside your stomach with maybe food and liquid above the bubbles or below because there's no up and down. So if you let out a real ripper and, uh, and belched really hard in space, you could end up with a funny-tasting belch because it could push some of the stuff back up, if you see what I mean, because the mm. food wouldn't settle in the same way as it does on Earth. Okay, very interesting question nonetheless. Clifford in Pretoria, hi. Hi, ma'am, how are you? Fine, thank you. Yeah, hi to the nature scientist mm. as well. Your question, please. My question is concerning weight loss. Is it healthy to use uh, apple cider vinegar mixed with hot water for weight loss? Okay, I've heard a lot about this apple cider thing. 
Hi, Clifford. Um, I don't know if uh, you're talking about using a very large amount of apple cider vinegar, but a very small amount sounds like it could be tasty and taste quite nice, but I'm not <laughs> sure that it really translates into a huge amount of weight loss. Um, I'm not sure if there's any real good, strong clinical evidence for this working, or whether it just makes you go, Ugh! to mm. the extent that it totally puts you off any lunch. Um, the reality is that energy comes into the body in food in the form of proteins, fats and carbohydrates and the body absorbs those nutrients. It uses what it needs for your daily activities. 55% of the energy that you use in a day is just used to be alive and the remaining 45% is used for things like exercise, staying warm, growth. And if you take in more energy than you burn off in all those processes, then there's a mismatch and the body stores the excess as fat because fat has the highest energy density. In other words, it packs as m the maximum amount of energy for the weight of anything we can make in the body. So it's a good storage organ and you therefore gain weight. If you want to lose weight, you've got to reverse that equation. You've got to have less energy coming in mm. than energy going out. And that means that you need to take some exercise because exercise boosts muscles and therefore lean tissue and that's what burns off calories. But also, crucially, you've got to cut down the amount of energy you're taking into the body and looking for empty calories in things like... Uh, Fats. If you butter bread, mm. you literally triple the number of calories in a slice of bread just by putting a thin veneer of butter onto it. So watch for the empty calories and try and lose a few empty calories to make uh, it, the diet less painful, is what I would say. And as one American person put to me, if the mouth hole is bigger than the uh, <laughs> asshole, then the, you're going to get you're going to get fat. <laughs> Okay, let's just move on. And Clifford, please take the advice from the Naked Scientist. You don't want to spend the rest of your life drinking apple cider vinegar. The options that he's given you, much, much easier. If your mouth is... Okay, see, it's in mid-range. Hi. Hi, really. A nice laughter. <laughs> What's happening? Uh, uh, Chris, one of the things that confuses me on daily basis, uh, it's when I see gay people and what run in my mind is whether these people are they behaving according to fashion or is it a disorganization of genes that results in them being a gay? Please explain that to so me. So you want to know if there's something called a, uh, the gay gene? Yes. I'm okay, that's yes in mid-rent, Chris. <sighs> well, this is a very contentious area and the answer is that no one knows. But if you look back in history, you see homosexuality from as far back as we have records. People like Alexander the Great uh, were said to be homosexuals. And roughly about 10% of the population, people think, are genuinely homosexual. And it might be as high as up to 40% of the population who actually are curious about what it is to have sex with someone of the same sex. And if you look in the animal world, there are many, many examples of animals that actually do engage in homosexual behaviour. So... The question is, why should this occur? And the answer is, well, is it a bad thing? And the answer is actually, if you look back in history, you find that many great people were homosexual and had a good contribution to make to society. So the answer is, no, it's not a bad thing. Um, if it were that everyone was homosexual, so we had no babies, that might be bad for the population. But I think the answer is that if it doesn't have a negative impact on the population, but it does mean that there are people around who are very creative and tend to be very happy and therefore make a very positive contribution to 
into society, despite not contributing genes onto the next population because they might, the next generation, because they may not have children, they nonetheless make a, a positive contribution to make society better in another way, and that's therefore why this carries on in society. Now, whether or not this is something which has a genetic biochemical cause, or whether it's something which is, as a person is growing up, certain things as they develop uh, interest them in the same way that I mm. have various interests in things I like and don't like, whether it's this, as simple as that, that people decide, well, I actually quite like people who are the same sex as me versus people who aren't, whether it's as simple as that or whether there is something deeper and genetically pinned, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. There are various correlations people have pulled out, but I don't think there's any clear, consistent evidence at this time that there is a set of genes and you can test for those and they always co-localise with someone who is mm. um, going to be gay. Colin in Robertham, hi. Hi. A freak weather thing for you. Forty years ago, I refereed a game in Wales in the month of May. Blue skies, lovely warm day. Kicked off. Fifteen minutes later, an icy wind blew up. My face went dead same as if I'd been injected by a, a dentist. If I pressed my cheek, I could hear this. <coughs> we had to abandon the game because it was so cold. And yet, nobody outside the football field felt the cold. What <laughs> on earth was the reason? So their feet, the temperature in the field was much, much lower than at, uh, at the stands. Chris? Well, I'm really surprised because, you know, people in Wales normally create such a lot of hot air. No, just joking. Ah, <laughs> you'll be in big trouble. <laughs> no, um... No, I, I honestly don't know. You do get localised weather funnies like this, and I don't know where your stadium was. Was it somewhere near where there was some mountains? Because obviously there are lots yes, of mountains in we Wales. Were, Very beautiful I didn't country. want to give too much because of time, but it was in the Rhonda on the side of the mountain on like a ledge out into the... Um uh, coming off the side of the mountain and the ground did drop away about 50 metres from the side of the, of the field. It wasn't a huge yeah. stadium. Be that, well, that could be the clincher, Colin, because um, when you have mountains, mountains are very cold at the top and they have valleys next to them or between them. And cold air rolls down the mountain and then plumps down into the valley. So you usually find that although the tops of mountains are very, very cold, the valleys between them are also very, very cold because they're in shadow and the cold air sinks. And what could have happened here is that the climatic conditions meant that the top of the mountain got very, very cold something allowed that cold air to come down the mountain and settle into your stadium, and it made you lot very, very cold. But locally, uh, that was a, a manifestation, but beyond that, less so. So I would think it's probably a big pocket of cold air that fell down the mountain and landed on your stadium. Samantha in Boxburg, very quickly, please. Hi, yes. Um, the pomegranates are red, but when you add water to the juice of a fresh pomegranate, it goes blue. Why is that? Oh, what a fantastic question. Well, the answer is that there are various chemicals in plants and the most common type of coloured chemical are actually chemicals called carotenoids. And there was a guy called Will Statter, who's a German uh, plant scientist and chemist who was around about mm, almost 100 years ago now. And he got the Nobel Prize for discovering a similar bit of chemistry, which is that if you look at the flowers in your garden, they're all different colours. But in fact, the 
colours are all achieved using the same chemicals, these carotenoids, um, but they are just, and, and especially one particular class called anthocyanins, um, but they are just at different pHs, different levels of acidity and alkalinity. And when you make these molecules more or less acid, what happens is that hydrogen ions either add themselves onto the molecule or are pulled off of the molecule, and what this does is to change the way in which electrons go around the outside of the molecule, and this changes the way in which it interacts with light. So if you have a molecule which is normally red, what it's doing is soaking up lots of blue light, which means that when light falls on it, the blue gets removed, which makes it look redder. If you change the pH, you change the electronic configuration of the molecule a little bit, now what's happening, because it looks blue, is that it's now absorbing more red light, relatively, leaving more blue light to come back to you, making the molecule look blue. And so what's happening with your pomegranate is when you put it in water, the pH is changing in this way, changing the shape of these anthocyanin molecules, and as a result, the uh, pomegranate changes colour. Thank you very much for the question, Samantha. And uh, Naked Scientist, as always, a pleasure chatting to you. Chat next week. Thank you, Reedy. See you soon. Have a nice weekend. Bye. You too. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.